I'm a lot higher than normal. This is a little unsettling, actually. Okay, I feel awkward now. I was told as a young man to never make a promise you can't keep. Never say something to somebody that you don't ever intend to fulfill. Turns out, though, that even though every single one of us has the best of intentions, when we're talking to others, we're all a bunch of liars. Statistics show that we are a very lying people. Everybody lies sometimes, and according to some stats, that the, the earliest that people start showing signs of lying is in childhood, ages two and three. And I can attest, at least in my family, um, my kids didn't tell a lie till, I mean, they still haven't told a lie yet, all of them. So that's not true for us, but for you guys, maybe that might be true. Ages two and three, you start lying. We start lying. And it's not even really, uh, it's often not for any good reason, but I'll get to that. I'll get to that. When meeting someone new, the average person will lie two to three times in 10 minutes. Two to three times in 10 minutes. Okay, think about that for a second. I mean, I don't know. Think about when you first meet somebody, what might you be tempted to tell lies about? Obviously yourself, but what, what would it be that would be like, oh, well, yeah, I'm actually six foot four. I'm pure muscle. I don't know. But we're lying about things at the, at the front of our conversations. More than that, too. Most people lie about four times a day which if you add that up is 1,460 lies every year. Now, in my estimation, I think that's probably a conservative estimate. I think people lie a lot more frequently than that, just because it's part of our DNA. We say things that aren't true all the time. But if you want to get down to it, (laughs) guys, I guess we're a little more guilty than the girls. The lie averages six times a day. Women lie average a day. And the lie that we both share in common, nothing's wrong. I'm fine. (laughs) How are you? I'm good. But really, you're not. Why do we lie? There's several reasons why we might lie. We might lie to make ourselves look good, which is often the case. I think that's when you meet someone new, you want to say things that are complimentary. Uh, Another reason, of course, this one we're probably all familiar with, lie to get out of trouble. That's a massive one. And we lie not to hurt someone's feelings. (laughs) How do I look in this? You look great. You look great. Stellar. Um, Yeah. Who gets lied to the most? Take a guess. Which group of people gets lied to the most? Coming in at 86%. Who gets lied to the most? Parents. <laughs> Parents. Um, second highest would be your friends at 75%. Third, on a, at a very close third at 73%, siblings. Siblings. I don't know why you're lying to your brothers and sisters, but your siblings get lied to. And the last 69%, we lie to our spouses, which is a terrible thing to have, right? Okay, where are the most lies seen? Take a guess. Where are the most lies seen? Where would you see most lies on paper? Resumes. Who said? Someone said it. Resumes. Resumes. That's a big one. And here's, here, here's a, the biggest one, the biggest. Where are the most lies seen? According to at least one source, dating websites, dating apps. Which, you know, in my estimation, okay, just, okay in fairness, is a filter a lie? Because you make yourself look really good on it. You know, on the, you look great. Your skin is smooth. You look younger and healthier. And then when like you see them in person, it's like, oh, you, you, you're not the same person. <laughs> These are two different people on the app and here and in person. All right. 
I don't know. Okay. Lying. Lying's a big deal. Here's the thing. Who do you trust the most, of course, is the people that don't lie. They're the most trustworthy. The people that we get along with and we realize, oh, they're telling me the truth. The people we trust the most are the people who tell us the truth the most. And that's what we're going to look at today. God wants us to trust the truth and the promises that he's made because he hasn't lied. He's given us everything we need. And contrary to God, we, we ourselves suffer a lot with being honest with ourselves and with everyone else around. But when it comes to our, our relationship with God, if we're going to have the right relationship with him, it means trusting the promises that he's made, starting with one of the most important promises that he's ever given. We're going to look at Isaiah chapter 9 briefly this morning. And we're actually picking up in the middle of a, of a long speech that's taking place. God is telling Isaiah, give this message to King Ahaz. King Ahaz is a southern king. So the northern kingdom, southern kingdom of Israel, uh, Ahaz is a southern king and he's not a good one. And, and God is giving Ahaz a message. And he's saying, I know you're concerned about, uh, about the, the, your northern king, King uh, Pekah, and also King reason of Syria. These guys are threatening you, but don't sweat it. I'm going to give you promises. I'm going to make promises to you that I'm going to take care of them. But unlike, uh, unlike good kings, King Ahaz struggles with responding to God's promises. In fact, you might remember King Ahaz's name. We talked about him recently. We talked about King Ahaz because he's one of the kings who sacrificed his kids to Baal. Uh, you remember Valley of the Sons of Hinnom where, where the kids, babies were burned? King Ahaz burned his sons. That's one of the reasons that he's known. So he's not a good king. King Ahaz is being threatened by two different parties, to a, a, a military alliance. That military alliance is between the northern king and, again, the king of Syria. This is an exact representation of them. King Pekah of Israel, not a good king. And then you have, in fact, no, no king from the northern kingdom is ever a good king just for your understanding. King Reason um, of Syria, Aram in this, is, is they're combining alliances. They're saying, hey, we're being threatened by the Assyrian king, which we'll talk about very soon. We're being threatened by him. And so we need to make sure that we shore up our defenses. So what we're going to do is take over Judah and we'll put one of our kings there so that we're ready for his attack. Well, King Ahaz, remember the, the, the southern king, says, I'm terrified by that because they pose a real threat. So let me talk to King Tiglath-Pileser uh, III. This is the Assyrian king coming from the east, and he's going to, eventually, he's going to crush them. He's going to crush them. So Ahaz says, hey, Tiglath-Pileser III, let's combine forces here. You protect me, and I'd be, I'd be glad to be your servant. And in fact, uh, King Ahaz, who's, it's actually, his name is a shortened version of Jehoahaz, but not to confuse. King Ahaz says, here's tribute, here's gold, here's everything that we have from the temple. Uh, we'd love to have you take care of us and protect us against these two kings. Again, the two kings he's protecting from, Pekah and Reason, okay? And so God sends Isaiah to King Ahaz and says, King Ahaz, don't sweat it, man. These guys have nothing against you. They, they, they're, they're not going to last. In fact, let me give you a sign. The sign is going to be, the virgin shall conceive a son, and you'll call his name Emmanuel, God with us. That's Isaiah chapter 7. That's another one of the famous Christmas verses we have. But he sends that to Ahaz in order to assure Ahaz, I'm with you, I'm going to take care of you, and here's a sign. That's chapter 7. When we get to chapter 9, God is still speaking through Isaiah to say, hey, I want to, I want to be there for you, I'm going to take care of you, you just have to trust me. And one of the things that I'm going to do for you is I'm going to send you a special particular person. And that's where we get into our text. This is happening about 730, give or take B.C. So we're looking at about 700 years before the arrival of Christ the King. 
But here's what Isaiah says to King Ahaz, the southern king uh, of Judah. Here's what he says. Read along with me. And if in your Bibles you have it, it's page 537 if you're looking at the paper. Here's what he says. He says, For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government there, uh, and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. How do we know this is going to happen? How can we be guaranteed? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Okay, so here's what's taking place. You remember, this is, this is God talking to Ahaz. Hey, uh, the virgin's going to conceive. I'm going to give you a son. You're going you're to see that this son is going to be more than just a young man. He's going to have the government upon his shoulder. This is going to be a special person. King Ahaz, trust me. Don't fear, I'm going to intervene in your situation. God is not passive in the care of his people. And you might think that that's the old school stuff, but that's just as relevant for us, uh, for us today. Point number one, you need to be amazed at God's active involvement. And not just in the lives of those people there and then, but in your lives here and now. God is actively involved in everything that happens in your life. He's made promises to us that we can guarantee and depend upon. He's in fact, he's, he's still working in your life today in every way possible. Man, I love Disneyland. I love it. I don't know if I love 16 hours of it, but I love Disneyland. And one of the things that I love, and I, I always marvel, I can't help but do this. In fact, if, if you spent any time with me as I was enjoying some of Disneyland scenery, I enjoy how, our, uh, how meticulously designed the place is. You guys pay attention to that? The place is just incredible. The new Star Wars Galaxy's Edge Land, I mean, just the, the, the it looks like you're in the movie. Uh, everything is, is incredible. You look at just the detail. One of the things I love about it is the, is the what they call the force perspective, that, that optical illusion they play on you where they have the, the bottom floor is the actual size, but the, the second and third floor, the, the stories above it, they make them progressively smaller. So even though you're, you're looking at something that is, isn't that large and imp imposing, um, they make it look that way because they make the stuff at the very top a lot smaller than the stuff at the very bottom. So when you're looking, it looks far bigger. You might have noticed that on Main Street, actually. On Main Street, the buildings are designed in such a way, you, it's subtle. It's subtle, but it's amazing when you realize it. The buildings are designed in such a way where there's a slant to them. So that when you're walking into Main Street, the slant makes it look like Main Street is bigger and larger than it actually is. So the slant is, a, so if we're walking in together, the slant is kind of away from you so that it spreads out the, the Main Street. It's really impressive. Again, you have to be paying attention. I looked this up to see how the designers did it. It's amazing. You, you might be able to see, there, sometimes it looks like it's camera distortion, but I think this is an actual front-on picture. There's a slight slant to the building, if you, could, if you can see that. Anyway. They're, they're, so, they're so intent on making it look right that they're willing to manipulate the scenery to, to change it so that it's more impressive to you. And of course, there's the hidden Mickeys, right? You might look at the bathroom sink and realize, oh, there's a hidden Mickey. I was on Pirates of the Caribbean and, and Justin Cox pointed out a small hidden Mickey that's barely discernible to the naked eye, hidden in, in the weirdest places. There's some hidden on the tile. I mean, the smallest, you know, barely visible kind of place, they're hidden everywhere. And that's the thing. Uh, you see places like Disneyland, and you're impressed because they take such care to put little secrets and tricks inside the, the entire park. 
But here's the thing. When it comes to the way that God relates to us, God has done a far better job than Disneyland does at providing us wisdom and insight to see, I care about you. God is actively involved. But here's the thing. When you come to God's word, in fact, when you think about God, one of, the, one of the competing worldviews is that if there is a God, then certainly he's given us things and he just kind of backed away and let us handle that. What's the name for that? It's called the watchmaker, the, the watchmaker argument. Deism is correct. You're not a student, Olivia. You can't do this. Deism. Deism. The idea is that God began creation and then he walked away from it and let us figure things out. But here's the thing. Uh, deism doesn't work. And I want to I make it clear to you as to why that is. In fact, I want to spend a few, a few moments unpacking how it might be appealing to you and yet how it's clearly not an alternative that we should pay attention to. In fact, God makes it clear. He's very involved. But let's take a look at this. I want to start with a case for deism. Again, deism. There is a God and he's not involved. Um, some agnostics are deists uh, if you, or atheists. Obviously, atheists believe that there is no God. An atheist will say that it's, there's no evidence of a creator. There's no evidence that God has anything to do with us. But a deist at least is somewhat honest, I think, to say that, okay, maybe there, there is a God and that God is, uh, is involved in the initial creation of mankind and the world. But at this point, given the, the nature and the rise of evil and the injustices that we see around us, there clearly is no God. There could not be. So I want to show you, there's a really good, uh, a really good clip that I want to show you that actually uses this argument. You ready for it? Here goes. The problem of, of evil in the world. Uh, the problem of absolute virtue. I'll take you in without breaking you, which is more than you deserve. The problem of you on top of everything else. You above all. Ah, because that's what God is. Horus, Apollo, Jehovah, Kal-El, Clark, Joseph, Kent. See, what we call God depends upon our tribe, Clark Joe. Because God is tribal. God takes sides. No man in the sky intervened when I was a boy to deliver me from daddy's fist and abominations. Hmm. I figured out way back. God is all-powerful. He cannot be all good. And if he is all good, then he cannot be all powerful. And neither can you be. They need to see the fraud you are with their eyes. Okay. If God is all powerful, then he cannot be all good. If he is all good, then he cannot be all powerful. This is actually built upon a philosophical foundation called the Epicurean Trilemma. I'm going to bog ourselves down with this, but the idea is that if God is all good, and or here, here's how it says, if God is unable to prevent evil, then he's not all-powerful. Uh, if God is not willing to prevent all evil, then he's not all-good. And if he's both unwilling and unable, then why is he, in fact, called God? This is something, if you're, if you're not a believer, I, I can understand why this might be a challenge for you. If you are a believer, you better know how to answer this. The whole premise of this sermon is that God intervenes in humanity. And if that's true, if that's true, then why is it that we're so often confronted with the terrible nature of humanity's woes and ills? I remember ta talking to you guys once thinking, okay, at this very moment, someone's being murdered. And given the national statistics and the global statistics, that's highly likely that at this very moment, someone is being uh, terribly attacked, violently destroyed. 
and even worse than murder. There's always a lot of other things going on. How does a Christian then, how does someone who looks at Scripture consider, consider how this actually works out? If God is all-powerful, then He cannot be all-good, and if He's all-good, then He cannot be all-powerful. Let me give you a few reasons why this fails and why I think following what Scripture says is always going to be the better option. First and foremost, it fails because comprehensive knowledge is required. You would have to say, you would have to say this, and let, try to follow along with me here. If God is all good and he's all powerful and still allows evil to take place, the only way you can say God is at fault for creating evil and not stopping it is if there is no discernible greater purpose for evil to exist. Does that make sense? Okay. Speeding train coming your way. I see you. I run to you. I shove you out of the way. I break your leg in the process because I'm really strong. I break your leg in the process and when I shove you out of the way, I, in a smaller sense, I committed an evil against you. I, I broke your leg, but I also saved your life. Okay? There's a greater overarching purpose for the evil that I committed against you. So when we start looking at the global evil problem, rape, murder, you know, whatever else, racism, you have to look at that and say, okay, does God have any purpose for allowing evil to exist? If so, then you cannot charge God with being evil for allowing evil to persist. Does that make sense? When evil happens to you, some terrible tragedy comes upon your life. You cannot say, God, why do you allow this to happen? Shake your fist at him and say, you're evil for allowing this. You would have to say, there is more going on than I am able to see and understand right now. And perhaps even for all eternity, you may never fully comprehend the reasons for which God does what God does. But in the same way that an ant doesn't understand me typing on a computer, I couldn't explain that to him, you may never fully understand the infinite mind of God. So the only way you can charge God with wrongdoing is to say, I know exactly what God knows and I know what he's going to do and it's not good enough. It's still evil. The Epicurean trilemma only works if you have comprehensive knowledge of everything. That is to say, you'd have to be God yourself to charge God with evil. You could talk some more about this at your small groups this week. I'm sure your leaders are going to really look forward to this kind of conversation. In fact, I know a few who would look forward to this kind of conversation. It's not easy, but let me just say that. Comprehensive knowledge. You can't charge God with evil if God has an overarching good purpose to allow evil to exist. Okay? That's the first mistake. Deism doesn't work because God is actively involved, and to say that he's not would require comprehensive knowledge of how the world and the universe works. And furthermore, God's care for creation can be seen. God's care uh, and his, his love for us, his, his, his intimate care, can be seen in the way that he approaches us. We have the Word of God, we have miracles, and we have Jesus' incarnation. Those are three areas where we can see God's intimate care and involvement in our lives. The Word of God, the miracles that He's done through Christ, and, His, uh, and Jesus' incarnation itself. Without belaboring the point, let me just say really quickly here, the Word of God, you have access into God's thoughts. You get to understand how God thinks about you and how you can be right with Him. 
Secondly, you have miracles where God strategically suspends the natural order of things to show himself as being actively involved in the life of all of us here. Lastly, and most importantly, what we talk about during Christmas, Jesus' incarnation. God sent Jesus into the world to redeem it. This is, God's, uh, this is evidence of God's active care for you and for the people around you. How do you reconcile then? Okay, I'm not going to open the can of worms, but let me just say this. When you think about deism as a, as a whole, okay, God is there. He, he's, he's, somewhere involved, he's somewhere there, but he's not involved. You have to start asking, okay, if Christians truly believe that God is actively managing creation, we call that sovereignty, how does that correspond and correlate to man's experience of freedom? How do you then correlate or connect God's full and complete control of everything and your felt experience of freedom? In other words, how is God sovereign and man free, okay? Let me give you a short, I I hope a pithy answer to this that will help uh, kind of untangle these. If God is God, okay, follow me. If God is God and he can control every single aspect of existence as we know it, he controls where you live. He controls how tall you are and where you're born. He can control the inputs in your life. So some people would call it compatibilism. That is to say that God is able to compatibly have full dominion over creation and, put, uh, and allow inputs and influences in your life where you are freely choosing of your own volition certain actions and and words and and opportunities, but yet God at the very same time, because he's sovereign, he realizes that if he puts these certain things in your lives, you're going to willingly choose those things. Compatibilism. I know that wasn't as pithy as I was hoping, but here's the thing. When it comes to deism, it doesn't work because Isaiah chapter nine shows us that God is intimately involved in your life. What does this then mean? If God is involved in this way, you ought to realize that that's a good thing. God is setting up your life in such a way that you can take comfort that no matter how bad it is or even how great it is, God is still in the very midst of it, coordinating all things. God is intimately involved in human affairs. And that's one of the big preaching points of Christmas itself. God sends Jesus to be born of a young lady to actively involve himself in humanity's plight. He continues on. It's more than that. It'd be one thing to say, hey, I'm sending you somebody, but what if that somebody was anyone less than Christ himself? Take a look at this again. Look at verse six, this verse six through verse seven. You'll see that the quality of the person coming to us, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And there's some confusing statements in there because not all of those are obviously, uh, are obvious on the front of them. In fact, one of the things that always confused me is why he was called Everlasting Father. Is Jesus the son? Why is he being called the father? What does it mean that the government's on his shoulder? How does that work? Um, I thought counselor was a name for the Holy Spirit. Why is Jesus being called that? There's some confusing elements in there, but what I want to point to you is that the kind of person that God expects to send himself to, uh, the kind of person God sent through Jesus is someone that is actually good, inherently deeply good. We can't say that for all of our political leaders, but we can say that for Christ. In fact, you should be heartened by the ruler of the coming kingdom. Jesus is coming back. This is the first coming, but Jesus is coming back and he's good. He's just, he's upright, he's holy, he's righteous. There's no spot or blemish in him, which should then give us a hope for the future. It should give us a sense of courage and conviction that no matter what happens, we can trust the coming ruler. 
I mean, think about this. Think about this. Your life, more than mine and more than many of the adults in this room, your life is being monitored and monetized. Monitored and monetized. I mean, just a, just a quick, I mean, this, is, this isn't the full gamut, obviously, but if you take, take a look at the big tech companies, all the data that they have on you, they know your age, their shopping habits, they know where you are at all times because of Google Maps. They know, uh, they, they know what your interests are, your preferences. They know your search history. They know everything about you. In fact, Google probably is one of the worst offenders because they literally are in your pocket. They're in your schools for the Google's, uh, the academic suite. They have your email information. And guess what? They're using your email information to sell stuff to you. And if it's possible for me to know all of your interests and then to, put, to give you a product and say, hey, wouldn't you like this product? It's almost godlike, isn't it? Like, I know everything about you. I know enough about you where I can give you a product. I know you're, you're going to want this. They're influencing you in ways that you may never even figure out until, the, until Jesus comes back. But these, these, these products and these services monitor and monetize your entire life. Does that make you uncomfortable at all? All of my email correspondence, my text messages, your messages, your group chats, they're all free. But as someone once said, if it's free, that's because you're probably the product. Your information is being used to advertise to you, to sell to you, to make you the product. There's no free lunches in life. You are the lunch. <laughs> you are the lunch. I bring this up not to scare or intimidate. Obviously, I love tech. I'm using tech right now. I love Apple products. I love Google products. I have nothing to hide. Take it, Google. <laughs> I'll use your products, and I'll be your product, I guess. The purpose in bringing that up is, is, to, is to ask simply this. Do you trust people with information that is sensitive to you? Do you trust people that you don't even know? It's you know Google, whoever Google is. Larry Page, or I guess, no, he's no longer the... See, anyway, you, do you trust people with that kind of information about you? People are nervous because Alexa is listening to you all the time. In fact, it came out recently that Alexa had recordings of private conversations that no one ever triggered Alexa for, and then it sent that private conversation to one of their close friends. <laughs> okay, thanks, Alexa. Appreciate that. We don't trust things like that. We don't trust people with this information because we don't trust people. The people that are in charge of these things, we don't trust not to, make, uh, not to make us the product, not to take advantage of our information. Next year was 2020. And in this next year, we're going to have a new president. This president may be someone that you absolutely despise or love. I don't know. I don't know what your political leanings are. But I do know this. How you feel about next year's president will depend largely upon whether or not you trust them with the decision-making that they're granted. Do I trust you? That's always the question. Do I trust you? And if you, if you have a sense of their voting record and what they stand for, what they believe in, what their platform is, you may have a good reason to trust them or not to trust them. We talk about Jesus coming as king, being born of a virgin and now coming back. Here's the reason why we can have utter and absolute confidence. Jesus, who knows everything about you, more intimately than even Google, which is amazing, is not just some tyrant, despot, monarch who's, who's seeking to crush you because you refuse to obey him. Jesus is the good king. In fact, what is this king like? Isaiah gives us several elements. Isaiah says that the government shall be upon his shoulder. That, it's, a, it's, a, it's a regal term. 
The government shall be upon his shoulder. It's kind of like a robe that would be worn on a king's shoulder. It's glorious. It's puffy. It's big. You may think of a red one in your mind's eye. And that refers to Jesus' supreme majesty and dignity. The government shall be upon his shoulder. That is, everything rests upon Jesus. The one who's coming. Jesus came first and foremost as a, as an, uh, as a humble uh, servant who is going to go to the cross to die for us. But the king who's coming back, Jesus, is going to have the government upon his shoulder. He will rule and he will reign and he will do so with supreme majesty and dignity. There will be no flaw in him. You will look to him and realize that there is no one better suited to rule over humanity than the perfect risen ruler, King Jesus. Isaiah also says that he's wonderful counselor. What does that mean? Think about, okay, wonderful counselor. You might use the word wonderful to, to say, oh, I, that was a wonderful dinner party we had. But that's not how it's being used here. Wonderful, okay, put, think about the word as it's meant to be, wonderful, full of wonder. It's something that creates awe in you. I, I remember reading one time, uh, when I first read the story of Solomon, where the two women came and the prostitutes came to him and said, Solomon, this woman rolled over on her baby and killed him at night. She took my baby, and now she's saying, that's not your baby, that's my baby. So these two women come to him, and King Solomon uh, is supposed to be the wisest king of all. He says, okay, here's how we're going to find out whose baby this really is. Give me the, give me the baby, and we're going to cut the baby in half, and so both of you now have the baby. And of course, the real mom says, no, please don't cut my baby in half. And then the other mom, who's the fake mom, who rolled over on her son, she said, yeah, cut him in half. If I can't have him, neither can she. And then Solomon says, okay, clearly you're the mom because you're willing to lose your son in order to keep him alive. And you lady, you're crazy. Get out of here. I was amazed. I mean, when I first read that, I was in awe. I was like, wow, what incredible wisdom. I want that kind of wisdom. That's the wisdom that Jesus has, but exponentially so, to a millionfold. Jesus is brilliantly wise. When we say he's a wonderful counselor, there's nothing that can come to Jesus' uh, courtroom, so to speak, where he doesn't have knowledge and wisdom to govern and decide rightly. Sometimes there are complicated counseling situations that I deal with. You know, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what the best situation is, the right words and the right phrases and the right response. Jesus won't struggle with that. His perfect, clear, thorough knowledge of every single one of us will penetrate to the core of who we are such that he never has to guess if he's making the right decision, even for things that aren't inherently biblical. He'll know. Jesus is brilliantly wise, and when he comes back, he will rule with brilliant, extravagant, extraordinary wisdom. Isaiah also says that this son who would be given to us is mighty God. Mighty God. Now, I want to say two things about this. Number one, context and this phrase, mighty God, gives us a sense that this coming son is more than a son. He actually is deity. But it wouldn't be this phrase alone because this phrase can be applied to other people. It's just that when he's mighty God, it refers to his all-powerful strength. How many of you guys have sore legs this morning from last night? All of us. Yeah, I needed a wheelchair on the way out. I was so hurting. My back was hurting. I had to take several ibuprofen. I mean, it was, it was painful, right? But Jesus, who is all-powerful, never wearies. Jesus, when he rules, he will never have to ask you for help because he will have perfect and full strength. Well, I thought he was a human, fully God, fully man. He slept on the mast, right? Yes, but when Jesus comes back to rule, he will have his resurrected body, which scripture tells us, think about this, we'll never rest, we'll never sleep. In fact, there's not gonna be any nighttime. 
because God's glory shines so brightly and so fervently that it will always be day in the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus, the all-powerful, strength, uh, strong ruler, will never need a rest. He'll never have to say, let's slow down. He'll never have to say, let's ride pirates so I, so I can give my legs a break. Jesus doesn't need a break. Jesus has all the energy and the power he needs. Everlasting Father, what does that refer to? Everlasting Father is sometimes, the term father can sometimes be applied to rulers in the sense that they're protective and they're careful. They love their people. Jesus is graciously protective. He's not Father God, that's God the Father, right? Jesus is God the Son, but his, his rulership and his care for us is gracious. It's protective. It's the same thing that you would expect your dad to do for you. If your dad saw a speeding train or someone was shooting at you, your dad would cover you. Your dad would get in front of you and probably willingly take a bullet on your behalf. I'm confident of that. That's how Jesus will treat his people. And in fact, before Isaiah writes this, before Jesus ascends the cross, but what more godly protective thing could he do for us than to shield us by taking the wrath upon himself as God's full wrath came down upon Jesus, his body being broken, but his soul being crushed because of the sin that was being poured upon him. Jesus is graciously protected. When he comes back, he will rule as a graciously protective ruler. And it says of the, uh, oh, here we go. And uh, Isaiah also says he's the prince of peace. He's the Prince of Peace. Think about this. What would it look like if we had world peace? If there was never any wars, any rumors of wars, if there was never any fighting, there was peace in Israel, there was peace across the border. We didn't have to have border walls because the ruler is so good, he creates peace between nations and it never has to be any problems whatsoever. You turn on the news and it's all good news. Another day of perfect peace across humanity. Another glorious day, another brilliant, amazing life that we've lived today. Let's all thank God on the news. You know, that would be amazing. Jesus is also righteously peaceful. He's not squashing people as, again, he's not a despot. He's not a tyrant in the sense that he's Hitler crushing his enemies in order to establish his own kingdom selfishly. The righteous peace that Jesus brings is the kind of peace that doesn't uh, create tension. It doesn't create uh, a, a tyranny. Jesus is righteously peaceful. He's dealing with lawbreakers. He's dealing with enemies. He's dealing with the evil. But when he settles them, when he crushes them and levels their kingdom, it is now a righteous kingdom. The Prince of Peace will govern with absolute perfect peace across humanity. Of the increase of his government, there will be no end. And of his peace... He is also generously loving. Jesus' love is expansive. Jesus is not tribal, as Lex Luthor said. In fact, Jesus' love began with Israel as a means to draw the nations to him. And again, we've made this observation before, but no one in this room, with the exception of yours truly, I found out, is Jewish. I'm actually Jewish that much. Found out. Hey, yeah, I'm cool. Jesus' love is not tribal. He wasn't meant to be just for the Israelites, not just for us. His love is expansive. It's generous and it's loving. We look forward to the kingdom. We look forward to the future. Hillary, Trump, Biden, that old guy, Sanders, Sanders. <laughs> whoever's in the White House, whoever's in the White House, I, I'm probably not going to like it. You may not like it. Whoever your teachers are, whoever your government leaders are, you may not like it. 
But we can look to the, the future, the glorious future, where we can have a king who is perfect in every way possible. That should spur confidence in us. A sense of, I can wait, I can hold this out because I know what's coming. How can we be sure about this, though? The last verse, the last verse says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Point number three, we need to be assured by God's guarantee to do what he says. God guarantees to do what he says. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God wants us to trust him. And in fact, one of the reasons that we should trust him is because of the first advent. When Jesus was born, he was born to fulfill prophecy. He was born to complete all the things that the prophets predicted. Sit and sleep will beat anyone's advertised price or your mattress is free. They were recently sued. Because of that, lady goes to them and says, you're selling mattresses that have no other known, how do you say it, um, the, the, the same brand. Um, well, beat anyone, okay, misleading because no competitors sell the exact same products. So they could say that because no one else is selling the same exact model, the same exact brand. And so she sued them. They settled out of court and we don't know exactly what happened, but they're making promises and whenever we make promises like that, if it's too good to be true, right, it's probably too good to be true. The ruler that is about to come sounds too good to be true. But you should trust this. You can trust this, first and foremost, because God already sent Jesus. He came, he lived, he died. That's a historical reality. That's a real event that you can hang your hat on and say, if God was faithful to deliver this part of his promise, can he not be faithful to deliver the second part of his promise? Surely God can do what he says. Surely God can deliver on all the things that he's already said. And we should believe that because he's also done that already once before. Here's another, here's another comforting fact. God cannot, it is impossible for God to lie. I, I've, always been, I've always been curious. Okay, uh, there, there's a movie and I haven't seen it. So don't, don't go watch it. I don't know if it's good or bad. But it's this movie with Jim Carrey called Liar Liar. And the premise is that he can't lie at all the whole day. So he's, he's being asked questions and he has to tell the absolute truth whenever a question is asked of him. I think, I wonder how many people would sign up for that. How many of us are so honest that we'd be willing to say, okay, I, I'll be willing to take on a, a spell that makes me tell the absolute truth all day, every day without qualification. That's terrifying, isn't it? But that's God's reality. God cannot lie. He cannot sugarcoat the truth. God has no shades of truthfulness in his word. He is perfectly honest in all that he says. And so because he's already sent Jesus and because he cannot lie, we should not doubt his truthfulness. And last, God, because he is jealous for his glory, will accomplish all that he intends to do, including establishing the ruler of our creation, including putting in Jesus to be the reigning ruler and monarch of our time. God intends and he will accomplish the fact that God, uh, Jesus will be the ruler of all creation. Disney CEO is jealous for his brand's reputation, which is why they're so good. I was walking by, I was walking out of the galaxy's edge and I saw a lady in the middle of the day cleaning gum off the floor with one of those scrapers. And I, th and I said this out loud, I forget who I was with, but I said, that's why Disney is excellent. They're willing to do the smallest thing, scraping gum off the floor to make sure their floors are pristine. Think about that. 
They want everything to be so good that the floor, the thing you're walking on, the dirt, they want that to be excellent. Disney is fanatical about their reputation. God is far more. Here's the thing. Disney might be fanatical about their reputation because they want to make money. God is fanatical about his reputation, and maybe fanatical isn't the right word to use. God is jealous for his reputation because there is nothing better in all creation than him. For him to glorify anything else would be idolatry and would be sin. But for him to exalt himself and say, I will do as I purpose, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will, will, will complete this, is perfectly right and just. God is zealous for his reputation. He will do what he says. You should trust God. You should believe God. This, whole, uh, this, this month, we're going to talk about Jesus being king, the ruler, the one who is rightfully going to assume his position over the rest of us. And as I said before, and I need to say it again now, Jesus will rule and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Every knee will bow either bended willfully or broken unmercifully. Jesus is the king. Our shirts say it. Our graphic says it. Our text will tell us. But here's the thing, young person. Jesus is king. And I told you earlier that Jesus will eliminate the wicked from creation. He will conquer his enemies. In fact, when we look at the last text for this series, we're going to look at the book of Revelation, where it says Jesus' clothes are stained with blood. And it's not because he spilled something on himself. It's because he's vanquishing his enemies. Who are Jesus' enemies? It is those who refuse, reject his glorious gospel. And the gospel essentially says this, you can be right with God. You can have all of your sins remitted, cleansed, removed from you. If you would but turn to Jesus as king. And as Psalm chapter two says, kiss the son lest he be angry. Don't mean to literally kiss Jesus, but to surrender yourself to him, to deny yourself and to take up your cross to follow him. He will rule, he will reign. And your job right now is to bow the knee to Christ. And that looks like two things. It looks like leaving your present life, leaving your present life of sin and of self-governance and giving yourself fully and completely to the governance of King Jesus. The second thing is repentance. The sins that you have committed, you say to God, you're willing to turn from them, you're sorry for committing them, and that you know that God would forgive you if you would just embrace Christ. You're turning from your sin and you're turning to Jesus. Today could be the day for you to do that. No, if you're not a Christian, today is the day for you to do that. Don't put it off. Don't delay. Today is the day of salvation. Let's pray.